0: Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again she conceived, and bore a son, and said, Now this time my husband will be attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And she conceived again, and bore a son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God.
1: Well, that's a good passage. Um, We're going to go through the whole passage this morning. Um... So, we we only read the second half, but we'll be tackling the entire passage of Genesis 29 today. And it's a passage that's a bit confusing to us when we read it. Like, how is there any devotional value in that at all? Last last night, I was hanging out with one of my neighbors, and, and her name happens to be Rachel. And I just made a, a joke about, she said she had a sister, and I asked if it was Leah, and she didn't know what I was talking about. Um, so then I have to explain the entire story of Jacob, of uh, Rachel and Leah. And then to someone who's like, has no biblical knowledge, it's like, oh, that's a weird story. Um, and, and, she's, and then she says, and what's the moral of that? And I'm like, uh, come to church tomorrow, you know? Like, it's gonna take a, little, a minute to get to the moral of that one. Um, have you guys noticed that Uh, on a lot of TV shows that are put out today that just with it used to be like on the DVD that you would buy later you would get like the director's commentary about that episode like you'd have to wait and get the DVD but now like they usually just put the director's commentary like at the end of the episode if you just go through all the credits you'll get like just this kind of director version like here's what's going on here and they actually interview some of the actors and the actors tell you what they were thinking when they were portraying what was going on in that character's life and when i watch that i love that I always stick around for it. Megan goes to bed and I stick around and watch the, the rest of that. And I just always wish that I had it for my own life, though, where I could go and ask the director, like, what is happening here? Like, why are, you, why are you orchestrating everything like that? I just wish I had this behind-the-scenes special for myself. And the reality is I trust that God is at work in my life. I trust that he is doing all kinds of amazing things behind the scenes. I just don't know what they are always. But I know that the hidden hand of God is at work. That the hidden hand of God is at work in my life, guiding me and directing me and shaping me like Christ. And I might not have the director cut, but one day I'll get to speak face-to-face with the director. And that is something that I trust in and something that I look forward to. And in this passage with Jacob, he didn't have the director cut either. He did not know what was happening. He did not know why it was happening quite that way. And we're in, pas- we're in this passage because we're going through a series on the book of Genesis. And this is just the next passage in it. We're in chapter 29 of 50. And so we've been going through Genesis for quite a while. We've got a little ways left to go. Jacob, in case you're, you're new to our church, you haven't been with us the past little while, welcome. Let me catch you up just briefly. The first 11 chapters of Genesis is about the creation of the world. And then after that, it slows way down and you follow one family. You go Abraham. Abraham has um, a child named Isaac. You follow him. Isaac has two children, Jacob and Esau. You follow Jacob. So the story is with Jacob now. It's the grandson of Father Abraham. And Jacob just got kicked out of his own house because his brother wants to kill him because he's a scoundrel. He's not a good person. Jacob just got kicked out of his own house because he stole his brother's blessing, his brother's inheritance from his father. And now his his brother is trying to, to kill him. And so his mom sent him away to her brother to his uncle Laban, which is a long way away. Uncle Laban lives 400 miles from where Jacob was living, and Jacob left with nothing. He grew up in relative wealth. He left with nothing. He has to make his way to Uncle Laban's house. This chapter doesn't mention God whatsoever until you get to the very end of it, and it's talking about Leah and her children, and then it starts talking about the Lord again. But the hidden hand of God is everywhere, In this passage. So I want to draw our attention to two points about the hidden hand of God. First the hidden hand of God. Leads us exactly where we need to be. The hidden hand of God. Leads us exactly where we need to be. And secondly the hidden hand of God. Shapes us. Exactly into who we need to be. The hidden hand of God leads us to where we need to be. And the hidden hand of God. Shapes us into who we need to be. Uh, before we dive into this passage, I want to give a, a brief disclaimer. When I was in seminary, I um, took preaching classes. They weren't great, uh, so I'm sorry. Um, but I found this one preaching class online that I loved, and I stuck it on my iPod, iPod video. You guys remember those? And I put it in my car, which was like a, a post-market iPod hookup where you had to like go through the glove box and connect the thing. I had an 05 Honda Civic um, that I drove around in, in seminary, which was relatively new back in the day when I was in seminary. And uh, I just listened to this, this uh, class on preaching over and over and over again you're talking 40 hours of material I listened to it at least five times over and it was a class taught by a pastor in New York named Timothy Keller and a professor at Westminster Seminary named Ed Clowney and so if you're ever wondering like who I'm stealing things from it's usually one of those two and if you're wondering about who are my biggest influences while preaching well they taught me the class five times over and uh in the class, it's, it's really amazing because Tim Keller, if you're not familiar with him, I'd encourage you to go look up some of his sermons. They're all free online. They just made them free in the past couple of weeks. They, you used to have to pay $2, which is kind of amazing that they were still doing that until two weeks ago, but it just shows you how good he is. Tim Keller is a wizard. He is one of the best of our time, he is the LeBron of preaching, okay, the greatest of our day. I'm not going to say greatest of all time, greatest playing currently. Um, he, he is the LeBron of preaching. He's still going at it sometimes, and uh, he, he's just incredible. And then with the class, what he ended up doing is he basically, it was like going behind the curtain in the Wizard of Oz, and the wizard explaining to you, you see that lever? Here's what it does, and that's what the class was like. He just, he just picked some of his favorite sermons, and he took you behind the curtain, and he showed you how he wrote it, and what he was thinking of, and how he got there. And one of his favorite sermons of all time is this passage, and it's a sermon that he calls The Girl That No One Loved. And uh, I, I share that as a disclaimer, because I've listened to this sermon that he's given, and the behind-the-scenes tutorial of it. So many times that I'm not sure where Tim Keller ends and where Fletcher begins as I go through this. Okay, so that is a blanket disclaimer for this passage, where like I'm not sure what I'm stealing. I'm sure I'm stealing something. I tried not to go back and look at his message, but it's hard for me not to when I. It's hard for me not to quote him unintentionally as I go through here. Uh, so with that being said, let's jump into the passage. Point number one. The hidden hand of God leads us exactly where we need to be. Verse one, we did not read this part. We'll need to look at it together. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 29 is where we are. Genesis chapter 29, verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the, of the people of the east. This is quite a journey. He's been walking for a little while. It's 400 miles, which is the distance between Boston and D.C. Imagine doing that without a GPS with modern roads. It would be very difficult. You'd get stuck somewhere. It would probably be New York, and then you would go the wrong direction. Afterward, uh, no, almost for certain, you would, you would get stuck somewhere. And uh, you would have a very difficult time getting there. But Jacob did it. Without GPS, he made his way there. And as he looked, verse 2, he saw a well in a field, and behold, three flocks, remember when we get to behold, what do we say? And check this out, three flocks of sheep lying beside it, for out of that well, the flocks were water. Now, he showed up to this place, and this is, this is kind of like an ancient worksite, That's how you have to see it. This is like a lunch break for these guys. They haven't started watering their flocks because what they do is they gather around this well, and there's a big rock over the top of the well, and they wait until everyone gets there because it's kind of a team effort to move the rock. Um, It's probably humanly possible for one shepherd to do it, but it's very, very difficult. You just wait for the team, and then you move the rock. And so they're all just hanging out, and these guys, this is just like your your blue-collar bunch at, at lunch break is what you have here. And so Jacob walks up. I love these guys. They do not care about Jacob whatsoever. They have one-word answers for Jacob every time he asks something. Jacob walks up to him. He says, my brothers, uh, where do you come from? And they're saying, we're from Haran. Like, <laughs> go away, kid, you know. But Jacob's like, what are the chances? I'm looking for Haran. Here we go. I'm going to ask more questions. And he said to them, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, yep. <laughs> we know him. What are the chances? These guys know Uncle Laban. So he says to them, well, is it well with him? How's he doing? And they were like, yeah, it's good. It's well. And then they they look up and they say, oh, Rachel right there. Go talk to her, okay? Behold, see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. Church. Check this out. Jacob just walked 400 miles. Where does he show up, and when does he show up? But at the well, the exact right well, at the exact right time, when Rachel is walking up, the exact person he's looking for. What are the chances if life is random? But life isn't random. There's a director. There's a director's cut. He's got the commentary, and he has been... Led by the hidden hand of God to the exact right place at the exact right time. If you're a runner, you know that four miles is about 10,000 steps if you're a runner or a walker. This guy just went 400 miles and so how many steps is that? Quick math. One million. He walked one million steps to come to this place. Any step he could have fallen in a hole, any step he could have gotten turned and started going the wrong way, yet God guarded every step and led him to the exact right place at the exact right time, what are the chances that the hidden hand of God would bring him to this place that feels so random, but yet it's the exact right spot for him to meet his future wife? I have to share the story of when I met my wife uh, here as well because it felt random like this. Uh, we met one another in our church community group group um, she walked in two weeks before we, we multiplied, and uh, our you know we say multiply around here to give it a positive, a positive feel. It's uh, you know divide would also uh, be an appropriate word. But before our group turned into two groups, um, she she came in with a friend. And I was already dating someone at the time, and so I was not interested, and uh, our groups multiplied, and then I was like, well, never see her again. And our church was about 1,000 people strong at that point. And um, I go on with my life, I go through a breakup with the girl I was dating, and on that day that, I, that, we, that we broke up, I went to go play Frisbee on our seminary lawn. And um, I'm out there playing Frisbee, and I meet... A guy, and he's like, yeah, I've been wanting to check out the church that you're going to, but I don't have a car. And so I'm like, well, I've got a car. Why don't you you come with me? I'll give you a ride. But he wanted to go to a morning service, and I wanted to go to an evening service. So I just drove him to the morning service anyways. And at that point, I'd stopped working in the children's ministry. I was volunteering in different places. Um, But since I gave him a ride to the morning service, I decided to walk upstairs and to volunteer for the kids' ministry. And as you all know, kids' ministry, if you're already approved to work in kids' ministry and you show up saying, hey, I'm an extra set of hands, they will put you in, okay? So, they, they put, and they did, because they put me in a classroom, and then 14 four- and five-year-olds walked into the classroom, and it was just me in there. What were they thinking? I do not know, but I started reading them a book and just being boisterous and, and loud and, and having as much fun as I could with them, and in walks a beautiful woman with a long black dress, maybe kind of like today, you know? Uh, sorry, I just turned everybody's head to look at my wife. Uh, and... Uh, And Megan gets placed in the same classroom as me. Now, what are the chances that this woman that I met once or twice didn't think I'd ever see her again, but because I went and played Frisbee that day, because I agreed to give that guy a ride, because I went upstairs to volunteer in the kids' ministry, and it happened to be her very first day to to work in the kids' ministry. And then, you know, I take things into my own hands a little bit, because afterwards, I talk to the kids' director, and I'm like, hey, is she signed up for every week? Because you can sign me up. I don't know. You're recruiting more volunteers. So, you know, not always the most pure uh, <laughs> intentions there, but it worked out for all of us because they ended up hiring me to run the kids ministry a couple months after that. But do you see how it all just hinged? Any one of those steps could I could have just decided to take a nap instead of playing frisbee. But yet the hidden hand of God led me every step along the way. Where's the hidden hand of God led you? You might feel like it's random that you're in the place that you are, but the hidden hand of God is active, and he's placed you exactly where you need to be. God has a plan. Verse nine, while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. So he did this team effort job by himself. This is the ancient equivalent of the church boy carrying four folding chairs in each arm to impress the girl, okay? He is just like, I'll show you my strength, and he goes and he moves that, and he moves that, that stone, Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept. Well, that's rather forward, don't you think? And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman after the kiss and that he was Rebecca's son. And she ran and told her father. Now, there's no reason for us to actually think that this kiss had any romantic intention because if you continue reading in the next verse, you'll, you'll hear what happens. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran and met him and embraced him and kissed him. Oh, okay, that's just how they greet each other, all right? So it probably wasn't a romantic kiss, it was probably just a kiss of greeting that Jacob gave Rebecca. We have to read this with our ancient mindset on. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, surely you're my flesh and bone, my bone and flesh, and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. And that's probably all he intended on staying until the next part of the story. The hidden hand of God leads us exactly where we need to be, when we need to be there. It could have happened a million different ways for Jacob, But it happened this way because God was seeing to it. Now, the second thing that we see in this passage is that the hidden hand of God doesn't just lead us where we need to be, but it shapes us into who we need to be. The hidden hand of God shapes us exactly into who we need to be. Sanctification, my friends. Sanctification is not a one-size-fits-all bargain brand T-shirt. Sanctification is a tailor-made suit It's made to your specific dimensions, your measurements. God knows you better than anyone. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He knows your, your sin tendencies. He knows your trust problems. He knows who you are. And your sanctification process is not the same as my sanctification process or her sanctification process or his sanctification process. But the hidden hand of God shapes us intentionally into who he needs us to be. I've been a pastor for almost 20 years. I think I'm going on 17 now. And I've heard a lot of people bring a lot of really hard struggles to me, uh, things that they're working through in life. But sometimes I hear people bring things that they are obviously very challenged with. And I think, oh, that doesn't sound too bad. But it's not my struggle. It's their struggle. And to them... God is shaping them to look more like Christ through this crisis. And that's oftentimes how he does it. Through our struggles, we're shaped like a potter with his hands on the wheel. Some of you are deathly afraid of conflict. And you know what? You better believe that God's heavenly performance improvement plan is going to involve some conflict. Some of you are deeply afraid of commitment. What would you know? But the thing that God desperately needs of you is to commit. The sanctification plan from God is tailor-made to who you are. And so you might think, why is this happening to me? It seems like this is the exact thing that I would not respond well to. And it's like, yes! Yes, that is right! It is for you! It's been shaped for you to be especially challenging for you and not for me and not for anyone else because God knows you. The hidden hand of God shapes you into who you need to be. Now, let's think about Jacob. Who is Jacob? What do we know about Jacob? Jacob is a trickster, is he not? He's a con artist. He knows how to get what he wants. He he drives a hard bargain. Jacob also throws convention out the window. He's like, "Eh, firstborn son, I don't care about that, I'm taking the blessing. He doesn't care about the conservative ideals of the culture. He's like, "Eh, I'm going to take what's mine. It's not mine, I'll take that too. Jacob also has been favored by his mother and disliked by his father his entire life. And so you know that walks with a person. You don't just get over that when you leave the home, but you live that. You carry that with you. And so God is about to hit Jacob with a tailor made sanctification plan. And its name is Uncle Laban. Uncle Laban's going to give him everything he deserves. Let's see what happens here. Verse 15 Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what what shall your wages be? You know, Laban knows what he's doing. He doesn't say, this is what I need you to do. He's like, you tell me what, what you think your wages should be. And he lets Jacob drive the deal. You see, Laban is a con artist as well. Laban is a liar as well. He's just more experienced than Jacob. He's been doing this a lot longer. Where did Jacob learn it but his mother, Rebecca, right? She's the one that dressed him up. And who's, who did Rebecca learn it from? Well, she lived with Laban. That's her brother. All right, so back to it. Laban. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And when it says that Leah's eyes were weak, every translation says something a little bit different. Every interpreter says something a little different. Uh, Some of them say now her eyes were tender. Some say delicate. Some say broken. And to be honest, no one really knows what this means. No one really knows what it means. But we know what it cannot mean. It cannot mean that Leah did not see well. Because if it means that Leah did not see well, it would say, now Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, she could see a long way away. No. What does it say? Now Leah's eyes were weak. But Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And so that would lead us to believe that whatever was going on with Leah's eyes, it made her non-attractive. It made her unattractive. It made her ugly. She was the ugly duckling that did not grow out of it. She did not become the beautiful swan in this story. But Rachel, she's gorgeous. And so verse 18, Jacob loved Rachel. Of course he did. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Look at what Laban said. Remember, he's a master of the con. He says, it is better that I give her to you than than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now notice what Laban didn't say. He didn't say, you got a deal. He didn't say, sure, let's do it. He said, Yeah, I guess it's better that she goes with you than someone else. He didn't read the fine print. Jacob needed a lawyer. He's getting bamboozled. So, verse 20. So, Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. How romantic. Isn't that fantastic? He's just, you better believe, every day he's out in the field with the sheep, he's working hard. He's looking forward to that day he gets to marry that beautiful woman. He's got something to long for. Many of us can relate. When we've got something we're really looking forward to, we long for that each and every day, whether it be a vacation or a new job or to complete a program or a spouse or a child. We long for that day. Then Jacob, verse 21, came to Laban. Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Now, now he is being forward, okay? That is quite a a bold statement to say to someone's father. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban also gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Just as. Rebecca dressed up Jacob. To pretend to be Esau, to steal his brother's blessing. Laban dresses up Leah. To pretend to be Rachel, to steal her sister's blessing. Jacob is getting a dose of his own medicine. How is it possible, you might ask? How is it possible that he could get married to this woman Consummate the relationship with this woman and not realize that it's not Rachel, that it's Leah the entire time. And because it says in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And I, I guess the best interpretation, the best way that we can understand this is that ancient weddings, they were serious about that veil situation. Okay. These days, you know, you might have a very thin piece of, of uh, lace that goes over your face, but you can tell who it is. But those days, veils, serious business. And You would guess it would be in the evening. So lighting in the ancient Near East, not that great. And uh, they are sisters, so they somewhat favor one another. Um, And the only other thing that I can think of is alcohol, and a lot of it, probably. It it was a, a feast and a wedding. This is probably happening. And so Jacob has been tricked by a dose of his own medicine. Laban has given him exactly what he Deserves in many ways. And his commentary on Genesis, Derek Kidner has this to say about this passage. But in the morning, behold, it was Leah. This is a miniature of our disillusionment experienced from Eden onwards. What Kidner is trying to say is that we all know a little bit of what Jacob experienced. Because he worked for seven years towards this goal that he is longing for. And when he felt like he finally got it, he woke up in the morning and it just was a disappointment. It wasn't what he was looking for. We all know what this feels like. I don't know what you're looking forward to. You can look in the past and recognize that this has happened to you though, whether it be a vacation or a spouse or a child. You're looking to something to make you finally happy, to make you satisfied. And, friends, every time you will wake up and you will eventually say, Behold, it was Leah. I experienced this deeply when I started a doctorate program. And if you've been through that, um, you probably resonate with what I said. When I set out to start that doctorate program, I wanted to change the world with what I had to say, with those ideas that I had. And then as I continued to write, I realized that I might have a hard time changing my wife's point of view on something. That I didn't have anything to contribute to this, I just had a very small. As you write uh, any doctoral project or thesis or, or dissertation, you continue to write. It's just like nuance, 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 and what you have to present to the world is just so tiny, so tiny. You don't actually have anything. I worked for thousands of hours on this, and then when I turned in, behold, it was Leah. Disappointment. If you depend on anything in this life to bring you ultimate joy, you will wake up in the morning and you will say, Behold, it was Leah. That moment will come where you are not satisfied with what you have been waiting for. And Jacob went to his uncle Laban and he said, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, I love how Laban says this. He's, he basically says, I don't know how you guys do it where you're from. But it's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, because they gave each person, you know, a week honeymoon. Complete the week of this one, and we'll give you the, the other one also, in return for serving me another seven years. So what started to be a month-long stay has now become a 14-year commitment to work for his uncle Laban. Jacob's sanctification is tailor-made, is it not? The hidden hand of God is at work in Jacob's heart. If you'll remember, Jacob is a baby Christian. Jacob just owned God as his own God in this previous chapter on his way to Haran, He saw the ladder coming from heaven, and that is when he said, Yahweh will be my God. And he had no idea what that entailed. When we give our lives to Christ, this is the type of stuff that we are signing ourselves up for. Hopefully, you're not getting married to two different women. Uh, That, we've had sermons from polygamy here before. I can point you to them. If you've got a problem with that, I'd love to do that. It's a sermon for a different time. Um, Never endorsed in the Bible, though. Only descriptive, not prescriptive. But... When you become a Christian, you are signing yourself up for an individualized growing plan from God. Jacob was a cheat, but Laban was a better cheat. Jacob didn't care about birth order, but he's learning his lesson now to care about birth order. Jacob's parents chose favorites, and now Jacob will have two wives, and one will be his favorite for the rest of his life. Now, some people might look at this and say, well, that's karma. (laughs) He's getting what he deserves. Friends, it's not karma. This is not karma. The, the principle of karma, there is a principle in the scripture that says you reap what you sow. But it is not equal to karma. Karma says, if you do evil, the universe will return evil. If you do good, the universe will return good. And here, we see Jacob experiencing something kind of similar to that where he is being shaped according to his own temptations and his own sins and his own failures. But what do we know else about Jacob? That he has these sins and failures, but what has God given him? Grace upon grace upon grace. He's been called out by God. He's loved by God. Friends, it's not you do good and God will return good. You do evil and God will return evil. It's, hey, you're gonna do some good, you're gonna do a lot evil, and God's only gonna give you good And sometimes it's going to be through suffering that he shapes you into the image of Christ. The message of the Bible is so much better than karma because our sanctification is tailor-made from God. C.S. Lewis gives this illustration of a man walking a dog. And I'm sure everybody's walked a dog before, but when you're walking a dog, you come to a signpost often. And the dog decides to go on the wrong side of the signpost. And it's almost nothing It's more frustrating, because you walk by the signpost, and then all of a sudden, it's just, ugh, the dog has decided to go on the wrong side. And you're on one side, and the dog's on the other. And there's only a couple of different things that you can do. But in that moment, you have to gently, for, you either have to walk backwards yourself, or you have to gently force the dog to retreat, to go a few steps backwards, so that he can continue to move forward. And this is the process of sanctification in our lives many times, is that we have to go a few steps backwards before we can start going forward. And this is what Jacob is experiencing here. He's learning his lessons. He's becoming sanctified. You may not understand what you're going through right now. You might not know why it's happening this way and what the Lord's intentions are for it. But one day, you'll get the director's commentary and you'll be able to learn. Verse 28, Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. And where we're left with here. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, is Leah, she's been this non-playable character until this moment, but now we're invited to consider Leah and her experience. It's gotta be a terrible existence to live your entire life in the shadow of your beautiful sister, and to then be pawned off to your sister's future husband. And now, she has to live the rest of her life in the shadow of her beautiful sister. Never being loved for who she is, never being appreciated for who she is, she just got tagged on. When Leah woke up that morning, Jacob may have said, behold, it's Leah. But then for the rest of her life, Leah would try to get the affection of her husband and she'd be left saying, behold, it's still Rachel. It's still Rachel. He still loves Rachel. Why is it always Rachel? But God sees Leah. And Leah's the only one who interacts with God in this entire passage. She's the only one who is recorded praying and interacting with God and where we know what God is doing in her life. And it says that when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And now Leah has three different sons, and each son's name reflects her agony because it's still Rachel. Verse 32, and Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She's hoping that this child, this firstborn child of Jacob, he'll finally love me and he won't love Rachel more. I gave him the firstborn child. But what does Reuben mean? If you look, your Bible tells you what Reuben means. Reuben means, I intentionally did this, but now I can't find it. Reuben means, see, a son. See, Jacob, I had a son for you. Will you love me? But in the morning, behold, it was still Rachel. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son. And she said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has still given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And Simeon sounds like the word for heard. The Lord has heard me. Maybe now I have two sons. Maybe my husband will finally love me. But in the morning, behold, still Rachel. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord is, oh, sorry. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. And Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. She's just hoping to get her husband's affection with each child Hoping that someone will finally notice her for who she is. But then finally, she figures it out. She figures out that nothing in this world will satisfy, and that in the morning it will always still be Rachel. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And the word. Judah sounds like the Hebrew word for praise. You see, Leah is the only one who figured out God's development plan for her because she realized that though she lived in the shadow of her sister her entire life, now the Lord is going to give her delight, but it's not going to be in the thing that she wants. It's not gonna be in the thing that she wants. She's given children because she thinks that children will give her love, but then she has to come to realize that the only thing that will ever satisfy her isn't children, isn't her spouse's love, it's not her career, it's not some fancy vacation, it's not some material object, it's not good grades on a test, it's not whatever it is that you're putting your hope in, it is this time I will praise the Lord, that I will find my... My strength and my satisfaction only in him. This fourth child, Judah, what we learn about him as the Bible goes on is though he is not the firstborn, he is the fourthborn, but he is the promised one that the seed would continue to go through for King David and for Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Leah, though no one loved her, God loved her, and she becomes the great-great-grandma of Jesus himself. You might feel forgotten, like no one cares, but the Lord has a plan for all of his children. Leah would have never imagined that she would be the ancestor of the promised deliverer. She was barely loved by her own husband. She wasn't. But yet God loved her and he had a plan for her. Friends, delight yourself in the Lord. Trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sins. Trust in Jesus, the substitutionary lamb, the promised son of God. And as you trust in him, be welcomed into the arms of the father. Some of us this morning, we need to bring the things that we're looking to to delight us and satisfy us to the altar of God and to lay those down, and to say, this time I will praise the Lord, and only him. Each week we practice a sacred meal that we call communion, and as we take communion, one of the things that we're declaring is Jesus is better. He's better than everything I have in my life. He delights me and satisfies me in ways that I would not understand otherwise in ways that I cannot have in my career or in my relationships or in anything else in life. And he, on the night that he was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup and he said, this is my blood, shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so each week as we take communion, we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the juice of the wine, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is marked by twine, which is a small string. And so that you can tell the difference between the wine and the, and the juice. And we take that and we remember that Christ's body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And we're committing ourselves to say, Jesus, your love is better. It's better than everything. And I trust in that. Church, let's stand and declare our praises to our God together as we take this meal. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we consider your your scripture this morning, we pray that you would be a source of delight and pleasure in our lives, that we would understand the love that you have for us, that you would give us contentment no matter our circumstances, that you would give us joy in the midst of our struggles and our suffering, that you would help us to maybe not embrace the the struggles that shape us into who we are but to trust that you are doing your work and doing your will. God, as we take this meal, I pray for anyone here who needs to lay down something at your altar, that they would give that up and that they also would trust in you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.